I want to invite you to have a seat. As you do, let me just welcome you one more time. My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's regularly my privilege to open up God's Word and to encourage the brothers and sisters that assemble here and anybody else um, from God's Word, and so I'm glad that you're here. And, um, but some of you I'm going to go ahead and ask to leave. That's uh, Hubtown Kids. And so this morning, if you want to head to the Blue Station, you're ages 3 to 5, you can exit to my left. If you're uh, age 6 up to 5th grade, you can exit to my right, your left. And this morning, I want to just briefly talk about what they're going to be learning. If you're going to be heading to the Blue Station or if your kid had went to the Blue Station, they're going to be learning about um, how Jesus interacted with a prostitute and how she washed Jesus' feet. She washed his feet with her tears. That's the lesson they're going to be learning about this morning. What about the gray station? What are they learning? They're going to learn the answer to this question. What do we mean by true faith? What do we mean by true faith? And the answer is, you need to ask a child. That's a long, it's a long answer. And uh, I regularly are challenging you guys to, to be interactive and connecting with the other families and other children in our church. And I was so encouraged last week as I was uh, just mingling with some folks after the service. And uh, as I was just chatting with them, I, one, of the, uh, one of the men in our church that's not a father, but actually he's soon to be a father. Uh, he's waiting this morning. Maybe he already has become a father this morning. And I'm, I'm just not aware of it. But he looked at one of the younger kids and he said, hey, what did you learn in your class today? And he asked the question. And I thought, how many times have I rambled on, just ranted on about how we should be asking the kids? That was one of the first times I think I had ever heard one of our church members ask one of our kids, hey, what did you learn this morning? I'm sure it happens all the time, but hey, be like Brandon in that way. Ask a kid what they learned today. Hey, if you're in the sound booth, there's a couple of you back there. It's like crazy hot in my ears right now. It sounds like I'm like in a can and I'm just hearing me and it's, Yeah. You can imagine how bad that would be. Yeah. Hard turn here. I imagine that there's a lot of you that think that you have a difficult job. Some of you probably are thinking, hey, my job might be the worst. Raise your hand if you think that maybe your job is potentially the most frustrating or difficult. Okay, one, two, okay. You guys can come up forward and thumb war three. Uh, we'll see. No, you know what? I was thinking this morning, some of you guys were thinking he's about to say being a pastor is really difficult. It's actually not. I, I think I pastor one of the greatest churches in, in the world. I'm, I'm privileged to, to be here. So it's not about me, but I imagine that one of the most difficult tasks, uh, one of the most difficult jobs is to be a doctor. Because oftentimes, here's what I'm thinking, they often prescribe to their various patients all these sorts of prescriptions, but so often their patients neglect to take the advice of the doctor. And I'm one of those, and all the rest of you are too, so we can all agree that we're in good company. There's a few doctors here, and maybe you would say, yeah, you agree with me. Often the antibiotic was only taken for three out of the ten days, and really that's, from what I understand, it only makes matters worse, Right? Maybe it's the three out of the ten days for the antibiotic, or maybe it's the diet changes that they asked you to make were only partially implemented. Or maybe the exercises or stretches uh, that you um, were asked to do were shrugged off, and you didn't do any of them. I recently talked to uh, one physician who said that uh, he doesn't think in all the years that he's ever been in physical therapy that anybody has ever done the exercises. 
How disappointing. Especially when they come back and they ask you to, hey, I need help, doctor. I still am in the same shape that I was in. And hey, you didn't do any of the things that he asked you to do. I think probably the most difficult thing for us to apply, being uh, considering myself a patient and not a doctor, is this one, to apply the prescription of rest. How many of you guys would agree with me? That's often the most challenging prescription that we can receive from a physician, that you need to take some time and rest. Maybe it's bed rest. Maybe it's give that foot a break. Maybe it's, hey, you don't need to be carrying boxes or anything this uh, big or this heavy, whatever it is. Rest. It's difficult to apply. That's the theme of our text this morning. That's the theme of our passage. So if you would, would you turn with me to the book of Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 4. As I turn there, I'll let you know. If you want to use the black Bible in front of you, that black hardback Bible, you're welcome to grab that and use that this morning. I will be looking at Hebrews chapter 4, which is found on page 1189. 1189, and there's a big number 4 there, and that's where we're going to start reading there on page 1189. The theme of our text, rest. Rest. What does the scripture say? What does the Lord have for us this morning? Here we go. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have, be- have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions Of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize this morning that this is a true statement that all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Father, we are a people gathered this morning that recognize that your word, God, is living, it's active, 
is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So we come to it this morning. We don't gather around. We don't sing about. We don't recite. We don't exposit any other book. We come to you, God, because your word is powerful. We ask that you bless the reading of your word this morning. Would you bless our thoughts about it? And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I rarely draw attention to the title of the sermon, but I will today. The title of the sermon, Enter His Rest. Enter His Rest. Some of you this morning are tired. Really, all of us, if we're honest, would be able to say together in unison that we're wore out. Maybe it is from our job. Maybe it is in some sort of a spiritual way, maybe in an emotional way, but each of us are longing deep down in our hearts for rest. And so the command this morning, the op- or sorry, the, uh, the command is to enter his rest, to not to overlook it, not to ignore it. And furthermore, there's four observations I want to give you this morning in regards to the rest that God offers. And they are these. Number one, his rest is sure. His rest, God's rest, is sure. Number two, his invitation is open. His invitation is open. Number three, his warning is clear. And number four, his word is revealing. His word is revealing. Maybe you've seen... The pictures, or maybe you grew up on a farm and you can actually know this from experience. But there's an idea of dangling a carrot in front of a mule. You ever seen that before? If you want the mule to go, apparently, I've never tried this, but it makes sense, at least in theory. If you want the, the mule to move forward, if you want the donkey to press on, whatever it is, you can take a stick, fashion a stick, and tie a string to the end of it. Dangle a carrot out in front, and it's always perpetually trying to get to that carrot, almost as if it's been promised to it. Parents, you've never done anything like this before. Oh, just be quiet, and there'll be a prize. Clean your room, and I've got something in my pocket that I'll give you. What's in your pocket, Mom? We've all all been there. Maybe you've had the carrot dangled in front of you, and you never got it. Or maybe you've done the same. This is a safe place. You can repent. What's beautiful is God promises rest. And the reality is that his rest is sure. It's not an empty promise. He's not dangling a carrot in order to get something from us. He has promised rest. His rest is sure. Oftentimes in life we think if we could just get to the other side of the hill, if we could just get over this difficult passage or this part of our life, if you've ever watched Little House on the Prairie, you know that's how the story goes. Every single time they saved for this and they just about to buy the thing that they needed and then everything falls apart. And then the next episode comes and they've gotten there, they've got all the money that they need for this and then Paul falls out of a tree and breaks his ribs and isn't able to work think, are they going to have rest? Are they finally going to get to the place that they need to be where they can really just relax and enjoy life as it should be enjoyed? And it doesn't come. 
maybe we begin to think, is that true with God? Will we ever truly experience rest? Rest is sure. God's rest is sure. You may ask this morning, what is rest? What does it mean to rest? Well, the passage that we read this morning, it quotes from Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I'll read it for you this morning. Perhaps it'll be on the screen. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. At the onset of creation, the earth, as the scriptures tell us, were without form and void, in darkness, in chaos. And God steps into this blank canvas and disarray, and he brings order out of what had been disorder. God accomplished everything that he desired to be accomplished. He brought into existence everything that he wanted to bring into existence. And what had been nothing, he began and then completed in six days. When we think about what God accomplished in creation, there was something according to his will that needed to be accomplished that he needed to do because of his own will again. And he comes into existence and he accomplished it. He took what was a mess and he made something beautiful. He took chaos and he made order. And at the end of that, he rested. What the pastor is pointing out to us here in chapter 4 is that God's rest that is offered to us that we so long for in the deepest recesses of our hearts has been going from day 7. That God has been resting in his work. From the beginning of creation, even until now, God enjoys his rest. Verse 3 of Hebrews 4, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Brothers and sisters, his rest is sure. He enjoys it now. You say, I don't enjoy the rest of God. God enjoys the rest of God. He enjoys it and has enjoyed it. It's unending, it's secure, it's unmatched, and perhaps best of all, that sure rest that he enjoys that you long for has been extended to you as an invitation. And that's the second observation that we see. First, that God has been enjoying this rest, the rest that we want. He's been enjoying it for all of time. And what's more than that, he has invited you into that. His invitation is open. It's not closed. You say, perhaps I've come to the party too late. You've not. You're just right on time. How do we know? Verse seven. And again, he appointed or points a certain day. Today. Saying through David so long afterward and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest For the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Here's the line of thinking here, the argument that's being made. There's a psalm here that's being quoted. We looked at it last week, or not last week, two weeks ago, and maybe even three weeks ago. David 
had written a psalm in reference to the rest that the people of God out in the middle of the Israelite wanderings that they longed for, and they didn't get it. And then David, quite some time later, writes the psalm, thinking of them, but also considering that the rest that they wanted back in that day, as they wandered in the wilderness, as they never, many of them, entered into the promised land, that it wasn't too different for them. And that they also had an offering of rest extended to them. So the line of thought goes like this. David lived long after the promise of rest was given to the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness. And then David's psalm was inspired by God and it declares the promise still stands. And it declares that by saying, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, as we looked at a few weeks ago, it speaks of the relevant nature of God's word. When God's word comes to you, it's the invitation is for you to respond today. We looked a few minutes ago as we read through. His word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's living and active. It's not a dead promise. It's not a dead invitation. How many of you ever have cleaned out your, your glove box or you cleaned out your car or you cleaned out your, uh, your, uh, your desk there at your office at work and you found an invitation for something? Maybe you cleaned out your inbox and you said, oh, somebody invited me to go do something with them last week, right? Oh, this is a dead invitation. It doesn't exist today. Well, God's word is living and active. His promise is living and active. And so David is saying, hey, today if you hear his voice, it's relevant And the reality is that the invitation is continually being given out. Why? Because the promise of rest has not been realized by so many. The promise was given again because Joshua's rest that he led the people into wasn't really the rest that the people of God finally needed. It was a realization of the promise of God, but it wasn't the final full manifestation of the rest that God had promised the rest of God. You see, the rest that God enjoys, the rest that we are offered is to cease from our labors. The rest that we are offered, the rest that God enjoyed is to cease from our works. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. They are the words of Jesus. Come to me, All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, Jesus says, all who 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 labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just as with the kingdom of God as a whole, there are aspects of the the offered rest that is already being enjoyed and some of those aspects not yet. This rest is something a believer enters into experiencing now, but this rest is in its fullness still yet to be realized. We sense it in our not too distant future. We can enjoy some of that rest now, that, that yoke that Jesus is giving to us, our burdens on him, his burden light as it is on us. He walking with us, we can realize and experience some of that now, and yet we still know that there's a rest in the future. 
One of the ways that we can think of the rest that we can experience now in this life and the rest that we can experience in the future is by thinking of certain specific instances. One is in regards to sin. Right now, in this life, we can have rest as it relates to sin in the sense of forgiveness and the ability to not be slaves to it any longer. Apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin, unable to do anything else but to sin, unable to do anything with the right motivation, the pure intention. But we know that there's a day coming that will not only be delivered from the power of sin, but also the presence of sin. This is part of what it means when we think of the rest that Jesus offers us now and the rest that we will experience in the future. Now we experience rest in the sense of faith and hope. as We see and hear the promises of God and we enjoy peace and hope in the sense that we know that these things are going to be true. But we're walking by faith. But there's a day that's coming when we will truly be entering into his rest more fully when we're not walking by faith, but we're walking by sight. What a wonderful reality. This idea that God is resting from his works. And he's invited us into that as well. His rest is sure and his invitation is open. The invitation being open doesn't mean that everybody will experience the rest that they long for. And so point number three, observation number three, his warning is clear. There's a set of teeth, sharp teeth in this passage. Verse one, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The NIV has softened this phrase up a bit, settling for another phrase, be careful. And the NIV is not a bad translation, but that's not the best translation. The ESV and many others continue to translate that phrase, let us fear. In fact, the New Living Translation translates it really well by saying, tremble with fear at the thought that some of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The preacher is offering a warning to us by pointing out what happened to the Israelites there in the wilderness. You see, they had been promised the rest of God In the land of God. They had been promised milk and honey flowing in this land. It would be a place of rest from their enemies. A place of rest from fear, a future. A place where they would be with God in his presence. And many of them never experienced that promise. As a matter of fact, there were only a few who truly believed God. When the word of God came to them and said, hey, we're going into the land, go spy it out so that you know what we're dealing with, and then I'll direct you, I'll guide you, I'll go before you, I'll drive them out. You know the story. 
Twelve men went to spy on Canaan, the promised land, the land of rest. How many were good? How many were bad, I should say? Ten were bad and two were good. How many believed the promise of God? Two. Two out of twelve. And these are the two that actually entered into the land. And the rest, what happened to them? The rest who did not believe the promise of God. When the word of God came to them, they did not believe it, so therefore they did not obey it. Did they enter into the rest of God? No, they didn't. And you say, well, they were the people of God, weren't they? They received the promise of God, and yet the preacher this morning in Hebrews 4 says, yes, but that promise didn't benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And so there's a warning for us this morning. Hearing the word of God is not enough. Mere mental assent to the promises of God are not enough. Just because you know the Bible, just because you've heard the gospel, doesn't mean that you will benefit from it. Just because you can even see over the Jordan into the promised land does not mean that you will walk in it. Many never entered God's rest. Only those who respond to God's word in faith entered. There's countless stories of friends and family members who at a certain point in their life, having thought that they truly believed, having thought that they had placed their faith in Jesus and had entered into that rest, only at a later date came to realize that they had never fully done such a thing. The scriptures are clear, even the words of Jesus. Many will say in that last day, in that fateful day, Jesus, we did all these things. We're yours. We, we obeyed you. We, we believed you. We did this and we did that. And he's going to say to them, to many of them, you're not going to be able to enter my rest. Why? Because I, I never knew you. You never truly believed in the message that I brought. This is a scary reality. His warning is clear. Not all who hear this good news, not all who hear the promise actually enter into his rest. And so maybe you feel the teeth of the text. Maybe you hear this warning and you're asking yourself, but how can I know for sure? How can I not be the one who falls in the wilderness, who hears the promise, but actually receives this realized promise. That's observation number four. His word is revealing. His word is revealing. Look at verse 11. The scriptures say, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Before I work to shed a little bit of light on this passage, let me just tell you what 
this doesn't necessarily mean. Or maybe I'm not going to change what it means in your mind, but I'll at least help you to understand the more specific or greater idea of what's being expressed here. Here's what I mean. Oftentimes when we hear that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, we think about the Bible. We just think that the, it's, this is a reference to the Bible. And the Bible, uh, whenever we read it, it's alive and it's powerful and it does things. And, and whenever we open it up in the service, it's like a, a knife that goes out and it cuts off the bad and it, and, and it helps us to grow and to be strengthened. And all of that is true. But what's actually being said here is the word of God that's living and active is the word of God that we read about in Hebrews 1, where it says that God, what? In many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, God has spoken to us, how? By his son. And what has his son said? Well, if you jump to chapter 2, what has his son said? Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard from the son, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation And so when we come to chapter 4 and we see halfway through the chapter that the word of God is living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, what word are we talking about? Yes, the Bible, but more specifically, the message of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel that he came to declare. It's living. It's active. It's relevant for today. Furthermore, it accomplishes and is accomplishing the thing that God intends for it to accomplish. And what does God's word coming into this world mean to accomplish? Salvation and judgment. It's sharp. It cuts to the deepest part of who you are. It cuts away the fluff. It calls the bluffs. It can determine the inner thoughts and intentions, things that you can't even do, the things that you don't even think are true about you. The Bible says, hey, watch out because this is how your heart is. And you say, that's not true. The Bible knows you better than you know yourself. It can determine the inner thoughts, the inner intentions, the secret motivations that you can't even come to grips with. It does. The word translated as, or there's one word, naked. It means to be uncovered. You think about it. We often don't want the true, deep, dark things about us, those little secrets. We don't want them to be seen or known by other people. And we can do a good job by covering that up with busyness or activity Or, hey, if I do this one thing, it's not like this other thing that I did. And so, but people will see this. And so if I do this a lot, people won't assume. They'll assume that I never would do anything like this. And what we're trying to do is to to cover up. We're trying to hide. We don't want people often in our sinfulness to truly know who we are. And oftentimes we can get away with that. Our spouses may not even know you. They may not even really know the depths of our hearts. People in our life group and D group and church membership, people who sit across the table from you at board meetings. 
maybe work across from you in a different cubicle. We can be successful in, in hiding and covering up. But when it comes to the word of God, nothing can be hidden. It cuts away everything. It lays us bare. Because of the prevalent cheating in the competitive levels of chess, here recently I heard in the news that some are suggesting that players would actually play naked so as to remove any chance of secret cheating with little tiny microphones or buzzers attached to their feet. The reality is that may work in chess, but it will never work. Cheating would never work before God. It lays us bare. It completely uncovers everything. What we see here is the the word's ability to break past all facades, to enter into the true depths of your being, It's not concerned with the externals, the religious performances, the penetrating word of God comes in and judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Furthermore, what it does is it it divides, it sorts. It says here that it separates joint and marrow. It pierces to the vision of soul and spirit. And you might think, okay, well, this is trying to teach you like some sort of a, a dichotomous version of humanity that you're not, a, you're not three parts, you're two parts. That's not the point of this. And the, also the point is not that God's word uh, cuts the, uh, the, the joints from the marrow or some, some sort. That's not, the point is that it separates things. It pairs it down. It's almost like the idea of a fork in the road. Oftentimes in life, We find ourselves where we have to make a decision. Sometimes we can come to a fork in the road and there's three options. We can continue going the way that we were going or we can go left or we can go right. Sometimes we come to an object in the middle of the way and the road actually goes around it itself and there's no necessary choice to be made. And yet that's not how it is with the word of God. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and it forces us to be, to choose. God's word has come to you. God's word has come to the Israelites in the wilderness. It came to the Hebrews, the Jewish Christians there in the first century, the recipients of this first book. His word came to them. And they made a choice. They responded in belief or they responded in unbelief. Those who responded in belief, that belief would lead and give way to obedience. Those who responded in unbelief, their unbelief would give way to disobedience. We see that. Yahweh tells the people, This is the land. This is the promise. This is your rest. Enter into it. I'm going to give it into your hands. Do you believe that? Ten said, no. I don't believe that. I don't have the faith to believe that. Two said, oh, I believe that. (laughs) Of course. The two that did believe, eventually they went into the land. They acted on their faith. It manifested itself in obedience and they experienced rest. But the others that the word of God came to, and that they responded in unbelief. They then led, that unbelief gave way to what? To disobedience. And that disobedience, what did they experience as a result of it? Restlessness. Restlessness. Life outside of the promises of God. Life outside the rest of God. It's a unique 
and interesting relationship, belief and obedience, unbelief and disobedience. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. Chapter 3, verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Those who said, oh, I, I don't believe that. They were disobedient. How did he respond? They were unable to enter, it says in verse 19. Why? Because of unbelief. And so we see in 18 and in 19, their disobedience was caused by their unbelief. We see this connection again in chapter 4, verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message that they heard, the word of God that they heard, it didn't benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And so we see this connection between belief and obedience, unbelief and disobedience. There's been a long-running discussion regarding the connection between faith and works, between believing and accomplishing something or doing something. James, our sweet brother, he helps us to understand a little bit better this relationship. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 19, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? It's almost as if he's responding to the Apostle Paul, who says that we are saved by grace through faith, and not that of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. How do we reconcile this with what James is saying? Verse 15, James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that are needful for the body, What good is that? And so he comes to the conclusion in verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But then in verse 18 he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, James responds and says, well, you show me your faith apart from your works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. He goes on to say, you believe that God is one. You do well. Good job. Even the demons believe and they shudder. The entering of rest by God's people, it requires obedience. But not first. First, it requires faith. Faith, belief that leads to obedience and that obedience that then leads to rest. Look back at James 2, 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. When you think about faith, I want you to think this. You could write this in your Bible if you're taking notes. Write this down. Two thoughts about faith. One, faith is personal. Faith is personal. You say, well, faith is a bit of an abstract idea. Indeed it is. But we do know this about faith. It is not factual alone. It's assenting to a fact, but a fact that you hold personally. Simply to give mere mental assent to the historical facts that Jesus is the Son of God and that in order to be in right relationship with him, you have to repent from your sins and place your faith in him. That doesn't mean that you truly have made it personal. It doesn't truly mean that you have entered into his rest. Why? How do we know that? Because even the demons believe this. Even the demons do that. 
and yet they're not saved. Even the demons believe this, and they have not entered into the rest of God. And so we have to be careful here. If it's not applied to your own, if you're not attaining this fact about the good news of Jesus for you, applied to your life, then you're, in, you're not in a resting relationship with God. And so faith is personal. It's not just a fact. It's personal. But look at verse 17 in James chapter 2. Before that, he says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Second idea that I want you to think about when you think about faith is that faith is practical. Faith is practical. Faith has to do with trust in the promises of God. A promise of God that he has extended to you. Faith is practical. It leans in, so to speak. Trust. This idea of this part of faith that is trust, it's, it's more than just believing that, yeah, yeah, this boat can make it across the shore or across the sea. And so, yeah, I believe that. Faith is actually getting onto the boat. That was the idea that we read all the time, but uh, when we think about chairs, you say, well, I believe that that chair or that pew can, can hold somebody up, and then when you sit in it, you're actually making your faith practical. You're applying, and it's the same idea, saying, hey, I believe that this ship can make it across the ocean as the great Martin Luther, uh, would, you know, that reformer, would, would share with us. Hey, faith is saying, hey, I believe that boat can cross the sea, but it's also, I'm going to go ahead and get in that boat it's going to act. My faith will manifest itself. You could think of faith this way. It's an active commitment. Another way, it's, it's an obedient response to the word of God. When we truly believe the word of God, we place our faith in to it. We lean into that. And that's why we read in this chapter, only those who respond in faith in Jesus will enter his rest. So, brother, sister, friend, the scriptures make it clear this morning. The word of God is revealing. It's dividing the group this morning into those who believe and those who don't believe. And so this morning, God's word has come to you. And there are those of us this morning that would say, I believe the word of God. And perhaps there are those who say at this point, up until this point, I have not believed. You haven't believed in the rest of God. Well, from this text, I can assure you, his rest is sure. His rest is sure. His promise, his, his invitation is open. And his warning is clear. Just because you've heard it doesn't mean you'll receive it. And his word is revealing. Today, God's word has come. How will you respond? As we draw towards the end or the close of this time, I want to ask you a couple diagnostic questions. I think that's always helpful to ask ourselves good questions. The first question I'll have for you this morning is this. Have you enjoyed rest because of your endeavors? Have you enjoyed rest because of the good works that you've been accomplishing? Because of the earnings that you have been able to secure? Have you enjoyed rest because of your relationships? 
Deep, abiding rest that cannot be thwarted. Unending rest like that of God experiencing right now. Have you experienced rest? The scriptures promise a rest for the people of God. Proverbs 13 verses, verse 15 says, The way of the transgressor is hard. The, the idea is this. Those who don't believe, those who don't place their faith in God, those who don't receive the rest from God, their way is hard. It's difficult. Isaiah 48, 22 says, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. This is where we get no rest for the, for the wicked. That's where it comes from. And it's not referencing health, wealth, and freedom from struggle. The peace of God that is being promised to you today, that's being extended to you in the person of Christ, is a peace that passes understanding. In that even when trouble comes, we're still able to sleep. Even when the enemy gathers, we're still able to sit down at the table that's prepared for us in the presence of our enemies and we're able to eat at the table of God. Is that your experience? Is that you this morning? Are you experiencing the peace of God? Maybe you'd say this morning, that's the last thing I would describe, use to describe my life. There's no peace. There's no rest. There's no Hebrew version of shalom in this life. Nothing is as it should be even though maybe everything seems like it should be. Maybe you got that raise, you got that relationship, you got that kid, you got that car, you got whatever it is, that house, and you're still saying deep down in your soul, there's still no rest for me. Matthew 11, the words of Jesus again. Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I want you to notice something. He didn't say, come to work. Christians should work hard, and so come to work, and you'll get rest. That's not what this passage says. He doesn't say, come to family. Christians are known for their family values, so come to family, and you'll receive rest. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, come to church membership. It doesn't say, come to Sunday school or to schooling or any of those things, even though they're all good. But the command is not, come to this, this thing and receive rest. The command is, come to me, the person of Jesus, and you'll receive rest. He doesn't say come to the lake house. He doesn't say take another vacation, find another relationship, or whatever else you fill in the blank. He says, come to me, and I will give you rest. Are you experiencing that rest today? Another question I want to ask you this morning. This will help you to understand if you're experiencing rest. How do you react when your sin is exposed? How do you react when your sin is exposed? That's, that's the purpose of the word of God. It lays us bare. You say, well, I don't want my sin to be exposed. We have nothing to fear. Why? Because the good news of Jesus Christ is that if we'll turn from our sins and place our faith in Jesus, we'll be forgiven of all of our sins. And we have nothing to hide. And whatever sin that he forgives us us is just a trophy of grace for him that he would go so far to save you. But is that your response? How do you react when your sin is exposed? Does the unveiling of your sin cause panic? Does it cause unrest in your life? The word of God exposes us. 
not for the purpose of condemnation primarily, but for the purpose of salvation. How do you react when your sin is exposed? That will tell you a great deal about what you're trusting in right now. That will tell you a great deal about whether you have rest or not. So when the word, like that living and active sword, cuts in your quiet time, in a sermon, as you're having a dinner with your family, when it's revealed, what do you do? How do you respond? Do you minimize it? Do you minimize your sin? Do you make excuses for it? Do you try to redefine sin? That's not really sin. That's a bad choice. That's a lesser choice. Forget with the times. We, we've redefined that. That's not how we define sin anymore. Maybe you just write out, pretend that your sin doesn't exist. All of these responses reveal that your faith is not truly in the good news, the gospel of Jesus that he came declaring. It's, it's not revealing that you're resting in Jesus. The most terrible thing that could ever be said of me or that could ever be said of you is not too terrible for the grace of God. We often sing a song around here, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Maybe you've heard the story of King David. David had sinned greatly. He committed adultery. He had failed his people as a king. He'd even committed murder. He was in a bad place. He did whatever he could to cover it up. He put on more clothing. He created more distance between people. Maybe he didn't look as many people in the eye, and he surely didn't want to see Nathan. But what's really interesting is, and beautiful and kind, is that the word of God, it says, came to David through Nathan the prophet. And he shows up at David in David's house and he begins to talk to David. And he says, David, what should happen to a man who does this sort of thing, stealing his neighbor's sheep, even though he had his own? He stole this neighbor's sheep because he had a friend that he wanted to impress and he killed his neighbor's sheep. He only had one and that was his friend. He killed it and served it for his friend. What should happen to this man? David lost his mind. I can't believe anybody would do that. That man, he'll die today. And how does Nathan respond? You talk about a knife. Cutting, dividing, joints, marrow. He says, you are the man, David. You're the man. In that moment, everything was exposed. And David knew that he couldn't run. He couldn't hide. There was nothing that he could say or do. God's word came to him. It laid him bare. It exposed everything. You say, yeah, but he responded in repentance, but he only did that after God's word came to him by Nathan the prophet. Yeah, that's the point. That's the whole point. That's why God's word comes to us. So that we, in our openness, in our nakedness, could say, yes, you're right. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I've done these things. And it's the Kindness of God in revealing our sin that leads us to repentance. David was a man after God's own heart. You say, yes, after he repented. And brother and sister, he was a man after God's own heart before he even sinned. 
What did he say in Psalm 51? After his sin had been revealed to him, he said, Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. How do you respond when your sin is exposed? Do you panic? Do you become desperate? Or do you, like David, admit your sin and receive the kindness of God that his word would come to you and expose you, inviting you in to be saved, inviting you into that rest? Another question this morning. When you hear warning passages like this one, and this isn't the first, this isn't the last, we're going to read a lot of passages that kind of shake us to the core as we study the book of Hebrews. And so when we hear warning passages like this one, like, hey, watch out, not everybody who hears the promise eventually receives the promise, how do you respond? Where do you turn? Maybe you'd say something like this, well, I repented of my sin a long time ago. I trusted Jesus and prayed that he would save me a long time ago. And now when I hear warning passages like this, or now when I see my sin revealed to me, I just try to do better and I lean into reform. I trusted Jesus for forgiveness of sin in the past, but now I just try to outweigh the bad things that I do with the good things that I do. Maybe I teach more Sunday school or volunteer for for bread or, or whatever, bring more turkeys in. Thanksgiving time. It's interesting, when you look at the life of David, he says in verse 10, Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me away. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And after that, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Notice it's after the cleansing that God performs in David's life that David does anything for God. Do you notice that? You see, it wasn't David's kindness that then leads him to be cleansed. It wasn't David's restitution. Well, hey, I'm going to pay for my sins and I'm going to do all this and I'm going to do all that. I'm going to make this thing right. I'm going to confess the whole thing. I'll release a statement to the children of Israel. It's just going to be okay. I'll get out in front of this. And then God's like, you know what? That's a pretty good guy. He came clean. Now, that's not what we see here. David doesn't run to reform. He doesn't run to good works. He runs to God and he says, you see me. You've seen me this whole time and now you've allowed me to see me. God, forgive me. There's nothing I can do. Just cleanse me. Just save me. Restore me. Don't cast me away. He begs for the rest of God. And then he says, after receiving that rest, he says, then, after I receive the rest, then I'll teach transgressors your ways. That's just what's going to happen. It's after that. After God does his work, David just does what he's been made to do. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You've been saved through faith, not through works. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? 
To what end? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has, if you're saved, if you've heard the word of God, if you've responded in faith, that is a gift from God. It's not your works that earns your salvation. God saved you, and because he saved you, because he's changed you, he prepared you in that saving that you would do something for him, and that's not how you earn salvation, but it does point to the fact that you have, in fact, been changed. And so each of us, at varying degrees of intensity, we're all guilty of one or both mistakes. We've turned away from the promise of rest in Jesus, and we've looked for it in something else. Or two, we foolishly decided to to try to earn the gift of rest offered in Jesus by piling up moral, relational, or theological good works. So you're in one of two camps, or maybe you're in both. You have a temptation to turn away from the promise of rest saying, I can get a better deal somewhere else. Maybe today you've looked at the promise of rest and you say, you know what, the promised land just don't look that good. You're not responding in faith. You're not believing God. Maybe it's the other side. Maybe you're like, hey, I'll, I believe God, but at the same time, I'm going to try to earn it a little bit myself. I don't, I don't really like people knowing how sinful I am, and so I'm going I'm to kind of guard myself with these theological good works. How about, a stack of, how about a stack of Puritan's books? That will really help to hide the sinfulness in my own heart. People, it's hard to see through a Puritan book, isn't it? Or maybe it's relational. Maybe if I have, just have lots of friends, people won't really know how sinful I am. Maybe if I just do a lot of good deeds, these things will help me. We've all foolishly went one way or the other. We either downplay the goodness of God's rest or we try to earn it for ourselves. And what's the point of this whole sermon? What's the point up until now of Hebrews? That there's a rest that's offered to you and it's offered in the person of Jesus. A couple weeks ago, from the text I pulled this out. Only those who do the will of the Father will enter the kingdom. And that sounds like, like a knife just cutting. Oh, my goodness. Well, I've not always done the will of the Father. And even now, in every way, I'm not doing the will of the Father. And so will I even enter the kingdom? I think that's what verse 11 is for. It's ironic. It says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Do you see that? Strive to enter rest. But the rest that we receive from God, we receive now, not in full, but at least in part. And so how in the world are we to strive and rest at the same time? The only work that we have to do in this is to fight to rest in Jesus. It's not in our nature It's unnatural. We want to work for the gift that God has given to us. You ever been somewhere and somebody's doing something nice for you? Maybe they've cooked you dinner and they're saying, hey, I just just want you to sit here. Don't do anything. And you're like, well, I just can't sit here. I'm going to have to do something for that, you know. Or maybe they give you a gift and you say, well, I can't do that. I'm going to have to pay you back. I'm just going to, I'll pay you back. Sometimes it's tough to just sit down and let somebody serve you and be kind to you. And really, that's the work that we have to do today. 
To strive to enter that rest is to say, I'm not going to do anything to earn it. I'm just going to strive to see Jesus. I'm just going to strive to look at Jesus so that everything else becomes strangely dim. I'm just going to strive to look at Jesus' good work, who, by the way, finished his work and sat down at the right hand of the Father. This is the striving that we've got to do. We've got to strive to see Jesus, and we've got to strive to trust in his good work and his obedience to the Father. I want to end by reading some words from a song. Condemned to die on a cross for crimes he had done. He was guilty. Everyone could see. But his destiny was changed as he looked at Christ and said, when your kingdom comes, remember me. In paradise that day he stood, just like the Lord had said he would, surrounded by those who had gone before. And one said, friend, how did you come? What are the deeds that you have done? And with tears in his eyes, I can hear him reply, there are no merits to my name, no works that I can claim. He who brought me here told me to say, I have come by the way of the cross. I have come by the way of the cross. It's nothing that I've done. It's the suffering of God's son. I have come by the way of the cross. There's a main idea today, it's this. Salvation cannot be ignored. How can you ignore the salvation? It can't be ignored and it cannot be earned. It can't be earned. And so what's the main idea? Simply this, rest in Jesus. Rest in Jesus. When your sin is revealed, rest in Jesus. When you're weak and you're struggling and you're failing, rest in Jesus. Turn to him. When everybody knows the worst things about you, run to Jesus. He's worthy. Let's pray. Father, we know the difficulties of trying to earn our own rest, trying to earn our own salvation. Not only is it difficult, it is impossible. Each of us here can testify that the things that we've tried to do to justify our existence and to find joy and peace have fallen. And now we hear in the words of Jesus this great gospel message, this great good news, that this rest that we want is freely offered in him. Father, we pray that you would give us the faith to believe. We know that faith is a gift. We pray that you'd give us faith to believe. Father, we pray that our obedience would fall in line with our faith, that our faith would not be dead, but that this faith that we have in Jesus would not just be mere mental ascent, but we would step into and onto that platform boldly. Father, we pray that as we do, we would enter into rest. We would experience it by faith. We would encourage others to do the same, to walk in openness, Father, to welcome the sharp sword that is your word that cuts us down, exposing who we really are. And at that point, that we would be a people that apply the gospel on a regular basis. Father, this is our hope, this is our prayer, and we ask all of this in the name of Jesus and for his glory.
Amen.